Great to see all of you here tonight. First things first, when you have a national champion in your midst, it's uh, worth, worthwhile mentioning. Uh, Chris Chanuma is a national champion uh, wrestler. He's right over here. Just give a little shout out, Chris. Congratulations. The reason why I point that out is because Chris and I were uh, scrappling one time, and uh, I showed him who was boss, and um, so that technically makes me a national champion, and uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. I know, seriously, bro, uh, congratulations, man, we're excited for you. So I think we should set up a scrappling match between you and I, though. Film it, no, not now, that would get awkward, that would get awkward, but congratulations. Okay, Uh, now uh, tonight, uh, we have a little activity here at the beginning. Uh, our astounding greeting squadron uh, handed some of you a little piece of paper like this. If you did not receive one of these, there are a couple on the end of your pews. I need all of you to take one of these out, grab a pen from the little cup holder in your pew, and turn it over to the list of uh, five things there on the back. If you don't have one of these, a piece of paper will work. A tissue could get interesting. Just get something that you can write with or write on, okay? We're going to have a pop quiz tonight. Uh, we're not actually, listen, can I, we just have a moment right here? Are there any more wretched of a word, words, in the human language than pop quiz? Listen, if there's one thing that in the past has just made me incredibly angry, I've pictured myself before teachers walking in the class and saying the word pop quiz and me literally like standing up and tackling them. Is there anything worse? You know, I'm just like, are you serious? Like this is, we're not going to have a pop quiz. What I am going to do is this. I'm going to ask you five questions. I'm going to set up five scenarios, five scenes. What I want you to do is I want you to respond and write on that little scrap piece of paper the first thoughts or emotions that you think you would have. Not what you think you should have, but knowing you better than anyone else outside of God, what would you respond with? How would you respond? What emotions and thoughts would come up? So, number one. Pardon me? I'm getting ready to describe that. Thank you for the interaction there. I appreciate that. <laughs> Respond to what he says. I'm getting ready to say. Number one, you're on the uh, exit ramp, and um, you pull up to the top of the ramp. And on the ramp, right on the left-hand side, you see a, a single male. And he's holding a sign. And all it says is, help me. Okay, knowing you, and the reality is you've probably been in this situation before. What would be your emotions? What would be your thoughts? You exit ramp and you pull off. You see a single male holding a sign that says, help me. What would be your thoughts? What would be your emotions? What's going on in your mind and your heart? That's on number one. Number two, a friend calls you. Says they want to grab a coffee. And, uh, in fact, more specifically, they want to they go to Picasso's down on Main Street, and so you're fairly excited about that. You meet your friend, and your friend sits you down, and you can tell that something is wrong. And your friend says, my spouse has come to me, and they've, they've asked for a divorce. In fact, they, I mean, they said that it's over. It's, this isn't going to work out. How would you, in your emotions and your thoughts... What would you be thinking? What would you be responding with? What emotions would be happening in you? A friend says, I'm looking like I'm going to get a divorce. 
You're like, this is a very uplifting uh, pop quiz so far. It gets worse. <laughs> the third thing, um, number three, if you're in Walmart or Target uh, or wherever you do your department storing, Kohl's perhaps, whatever, um, and uh, you're, you're minding your own business, as most of you do, unfortunately, in department stores. You should be much more attuned to the people you're around, but you're minding your own business, and it used to happen, though, to come up upon this little scene that's in the aisle. Uh, you have a, a mother, and she has many children, in fact, too many to even count. You're guessing five or six. She's trying to discipline one, one of the youngest, and then you see a couple of the others are, like, in the chip aisles, like, grabbing bags and throwing them in the car. It's, you literally walk up on a chaotic scene. Amidst the chaos, you notice uh, that the mom isn't wearing a wedding ring, and so you only assume at that point that good chance that she's doing this alone. Now, whether you know for sure that she is or not, you stand in that aisle and you look at a single mother, five, six kids, and you're struck with something, thought, emotion. So for you, knowing you, what would be going through your mind, your heart, your emotions? Potential single mother there in Walmart or Target. Fourth thing is this. Good friends of yours uh, have been expecting a child, so you've been really amped about that for them. But you get a phone call from the friend, and his immediate reaction or her immediate reaction on the phone is somewhat frantic, and so you're drawn in by the conversation, and they're describing a scene for you, basically that they're headed to the hospital. Um, they're going to be doing an emergency C-section, and in your mind, you're thinking, whoa, 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 like, this is way too early. And then they take out the assumption when they say, yeah, like, we're not due for another three months. So you're on the other end of that phone line. And you hear the friend say, we're, we're headed in for an emergency C-section. And we don't know what's going to happen. What would be your emotions, knowing you, your thoughts, your questions, what's going on inside of you? What's amazing about this is like we, we think that, that we would all respond similarly, but I think what we would find if we were to poll the audience on some of these is that we would respond very different. And I'm going to say this before we uh, ask the final one. No matter how you're answering these, agree or disagree with me, uh, perspective changes everything, doesn't it? And, and not just perspective, but your perspective. Your individual perspective on each of these situations makes each of these somewhat personal. So lastly, you're walking on beautiful Main Street St. Charles. Anyone agree that it's beautiful? Uh, if you aren't or don't think that way, uh, hopefully you will here shortly when we move down there. But it is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, that in Cabo. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other statement. Um, and you're, you're walking along, and you see, um, you see a friend that you haven't seen in years kind of come up on you. And, and, and you're excited to see them. You haven't talked to them. You went to maybe high school with them or college. And, and you get closer to them, and they just, they just look incredibly strung out. This wasn't the person that you knew back then. But, I mean, it looks like, just from your perception, that this person is either really, really tired or really, really gripped by drugs or some kind of other substance. And so you, you set up a time to meet with them. 
And they say, sure. And, and in that time, for whatever reason, in all vulnerability, they just divulge the fact that they've really desperately been struggling for a couple of years with you name the drug. And so you're looking there across from this person that you used to know to be this way, and now it's like all life is just completely abandoned in substance abuse. So again, you, knowing you, knowing your emotions, knowing your thoughts, what would you be thinking, feeling? Perspective changes everything. And I want, I want you to hold on to this card. I want you to put it away in your Bible. I want you to, we're going to be coming back to this card this evening. But as you continue to, to divulge tonight and to think through the, the theme of the text, I want you to keep that card close. I want you to think back, maybe even often as we're journeying tonight about some of the answers that you journeyed or wrote down. But let's just agree on this before we do anything else. Perspective, your personal, individual perspective is absolutely key. Now the perspective of the writer of Hebrews, which is what we're studying, last week was very clear. And that perspective is this, that that Jesus is the trailblazer, the pioneer, the leader of our salvation. And we use this image of a deep, dense forest that he's cut through every deep, dark disparity of humanity. He's paved the way. He's pioneered. He's trailblazed. And then the opportunity of his children is to follow in that clearing. So we talked about the opportunity that we have to not just be saved by Jesus, not just have eternal life or forgiveness of sins, but also the theological term, be sanctified, be made holy, be made right, following the path of Christ. Now, tonight, in this very wordy chapter 2, and if you've been journeying with us, you know this, chapter 2, incredibly wordy. Listen, tonight, I don't know how many of you like puzzles, but there's like five puzzle pieces that complete this incredible chapter 2 tonight. So I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. The page number is on your screen. We're going to read the entirety of the text, verse 14 through 18, and then dive in face first. Christianoma style, right? Here we go. Verse 14. You guys there? Sam? there. Wonderful. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who uh, uh, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll define that term. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I want to say this before we're getting in. There's some teachings, messages, texts that grab my personal heart, challenge me more, convict me more than others. This is one that I've personally been challenged on in an immense proportion. I've been convicted by it. I've been challenged by it. And so I hope tonight what happens is that God stirs all of us, teaches us the text, builds our doctrine, our understanding of the word here, but also does so in a life-changing way. Amen? 
So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to go. We're going to go. Here we go. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this time, this opportunity to be together. Uh, Stir, change, convict our hearts. Draw us in unity as the church together. And I pray, Lord, Lord God, that you'll grow us. That we'll hear from you tonight and only you in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Verse 14, put this up for me. Let's break this down piece by piece. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Now, uh, question, who is the children? Well, in verse 13, as we said, these are the people of God. God's children called God's children because of the sacrifice of the Lord. The word share is really important. It means communion, fellowship. We, people, we share in something. We have many differences, trust me. Many, many differences, right? Different hair color, eye color, all of these things. Like we love different things. Some things make us angry that other things don't. But we share in this flesh and blood. One of the prerequisites for humanity is flesh and blood. I'm just saying, right? Like I'm not a biology geometrist, but I know this, okay? Is that flesh and blood is, is human. We share in this. Now, what the Scripture says is this, and I need you to understand and see this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, what's the word? Partook of the same things. Now, the words share and partook are very, very different. Share, as we've just described, means communion, fellowship. We, as humans, all have flesh and blood. But Jesus partook of the same things. Now, The doctrinal theological term here is incarnation. That Jesus leaves heaven and puts on flesh and blood. Listen, he doesn't share in fellowship with humans. That's the word share. We do. But he partakes. In other words, he puts on something, adds something to his nature that he isn't inherently. Are you with me? Jesus isn't inherently man doesn't inherently have flesh and blood. And so he partakes. He takes on the nature of man and becomes like man, flesh and blood. Now, it's, it's amazing to understand how many people struggle with the fact that Jesus actually came to this earth as fully God and fully man, especially when the writer is writing. There was this group of people called the Gnostics that believed that Jesus didn't come in flesh and blood, that almost he was like a ghostly figure, like this imagery of God, but he wasn't really suffering on the cross. He wasn't really uh, feeling these things. He didn't uh, get hungry and thirsty. What I've realized, listen, more and more, especially in this text, is that the incarnation of Jesus is not just central to the Christian faith, but it's pivotal to our understanding of the character of Christ. If he doesn't come in flesh and blood, if he doesn't get hungry, if he doesn't get thirsty, then what the rest of this passage describes is if those things don't happen, then all of a sudden Christ becomes distant from humanity. But in this picture, he's not distant at all. He partakes. He grabs hold of our nature. Which the scripture calls humbling, but I just... Describe as like pretty well kind of not encouraging. You know what I'm saying? Like think of that. You're, you're God, for instance, for a moment here. And you look down and you see this, this sinful place. And you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab a hold of some of their nature and become like them. Like scripture calls it humbling. 
Can you even begin to understand that kind of humility? Can you even begin? God to man, partaking. Now look at how the scripture keeps going. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the what? The devil. Can we disagree right now tonight? Uh, we, the devil's weird for us, isn't it? Like, we don't really know what to say about it, right? Sometimes we blame things on him. We're not really sure if that should be. Like, some, we don't know how to think about him. Is he the red man in the cape with the tail? Like, what, what is Satan? What is the devil? Uh, Christians in general, their doctrine of demonology is really, really poor. I feel like we've attached ourselves to many things culturally that, uh, that teach us about, the, about Satan and the devil, but we've, we've left the scriptures. So I want to try to teach a little bit here on the devil from the, the scriptural perspective. And that's this. The devil's primary weapon is his death. His primary weapon is death. We can agree and disagree about all of the aspects of Satan, but we can and we must agree on this, that his primary weapon is death. Look at what the scripture says. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Uh, here's what the writer is saying. Is that somehow death conquers death. Somehow, death, you're like, this is a whole lot of dying here tonight, right? Like, this is so far not a really encouraging evening. Let's describe this. How can death conquer death? I don't claim to be a war hero, though often I wish I was. Um, Like, World War II vets, does anyone just, like, love World War II vets? If I could meet a World War II vet every day of my life, it would be unbelievable because I just think these guys are heroes, right? So I don't, I'm not a war hero. I don't claim to be a master of weaponry. Um, but I have seen television. Um, CSI Miami has taught me much of weaponry, okay? And um, Deadliest Warrior, have you seen this show? Has taught me much about uh, weaponry. So I'm going to use real quick uh, a Deadliest Warrior image, okay? You've got uh, a samurai over here. Um, so samurais, their big uh, weapon is what? Yeah, like you know, several different answers there, um, no, it's not uh, mammals. Like, I heard, like, some fish or something. No, like, they, swords, right? They may even use some knives, like, hand-to-hand combat. So picture a samurai right here. Uh, about 30 foot away, we're going to put Rambo, okay? Now, um, now, here's the thing. So the, the samurai stands over here, you know, and he's got a sword, and he can probably throw it. I mean, he, he may have some knives and some other weaponry. Uh, Trevor, would, uh, would a samurai have uh, knives and stuff? They would. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's our Wicca, Wikipedia back there. And, and so, but, but the problem is Rambo, um, yeah, Rambo has a big machine gun, first of all, like propped right here. And on this shoulder, he has a grenade launcher, okay? Now, like I'm A plus B, I'm going with Rambo. Anyone else? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like his, his weaponry, especially at a distance. Now, if you got him like hand to hand, like, you know, right here, and he's got, you know, they, they both die, right? But if you put them 30 foot apart, This weaponry is better. And so the image of the scripture is that somehow there's a a better weapon than what Satan has in death. Well, what is that weapon? How does death, through Christ, how is that a better weapon than Satan's death? Let's, Let's talk about it. Jesus comes, lives sinlessly. I'll be talking about that in length later. Lives sinlessly comes as Christ or as God's son dies on the cross and at that point you have death for death 
Satan's biggest weapon, because of sin, he knows it. Listen, if Satan can just get us to be distracted from forgiveness, to be distracted from the person of Christ, then death is imminent for all of us. If he can just do that. And so you have Satan and Christ. Christ dead and Satan's weaponry death. Uh, Problem is, that ain't the end of the story. Three days later, the scripture says, and my heart screams, is that my God raised from the dead. And the way you defeat death is you have to die and you have to live again. And in that moment, and that moment, listen, in that moment only do you defeat the power of death. That's why scripture says in one place, death, what is your victory? Where is your sting? You have no victory. You have no sting because Christ resurrected. He came out of the tomb. He's alive. And so because of that, he conquers, defeats, destroys the power of the devil. The word destroy here, listen, is literally to render idle. So he, he completely takes his weaponry of death and just, and just squashes it, or in the picture of the scriptures, stomps on the head of the serpent. That's what Jesus did. That's who your Savior is. Death for death because he lives. Now, in the picture and the understanding of the character of Christ, this better sink in as not just a doctrinal understanding, but your means to God. Now, all of this is foundational to verse 15. Put it up here. Verse 15. And because of this, defeating death by dying and raising again, that he would deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, let's just keep the death theme going, shall we? Um, I believe all of you have pretty much three responses to death. First of all, it's the greatest human fear. You start thinking about death, there's all kinds of thoughts that come into your mind, isn't there? Now, the reason why we have to understand death for death is, is so vividly clear in this scripture. You're one of three. The first, the first one is, anytime you think of death, you, like you lose sleep. That's some of you. You start thinking about how and why and when it's left behind. And literally every single time you think about your death, though you know it's imminent, though you know it's real, I mean, it grips you. It scares you. That's some of you. Uh, Others of you work by the premise of uh, denial, right? Uh, That somehow by not thinking about death, that maybe you'll live longer, right? Like somehow your final destination, like beat the code somehow, you know what I mean? Like the roller coaster won't run over my face somehow or whatever that movie, whatever happens in that movie. If I just don't think about death, uh, then I won't die. Um, Okay, good luck with that approach. It's coming, it's imminent. And then the third category of people, um, the very small category of people, death actually drives you. Like my football coach used to say, I'll play every down like it's your last because you never know. How many of you have heard coaches say that before? Okay, um, just me. So some of you, like the thought of death, you're like, okay, well, then today I better live like it. this is all I got because maybe it is. We're very different, but there's one common theme is that death is imminent for us. And the way the scripture describes it is that it's slavery. The fear of that imminent death 
is literally slavery. Now, if you hear anything tonight, this is the piece that I've really been struggling with. You either fear death, live a lifelong term of slavery, worried, wondering, when will it come, how will it come, why will it come? Or you embrace what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Those are your two options. Listen, you either fear death, lifelong slavery, or you embrace what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Here's where it gets really tough for me. My kids. When you become a parent, there's something that happens. Let me just describe this to you. Every emotion in the world when you hold your kids, when you look at your kids, when they laugh, when they cry, when they're sitting on your lap, all of this, it is such a joy to be a parent. So many tough days, yes, especially with kids that are named Dawson, but most kids, you're just, you're gripped by, you, here's your litmus test, here's my litmus test. If when thinking about death, my first thought is my kids, then I fear death. My first thought. If my first thought when thinking about death is not the presence of God, it's not standing in the presence on my face in worship of God, if that's not my image, then I fear death. Because what I'm saying is, is that my kids hold more value than the presence of God. I'm not diminishing the value of my kids here and now, but in the perspective against eternity, against most importantly the presence of God, do you see? If when the concept of death arises in your mind and you think about all of the relationships first, who would be left behind, what would they feel, and you don't imagine what it's like to be in the presence of God, that's when you're living this lifelong bondage of slavery and not really believing in your heart to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because I'll tell you this right now. There's many times that I've quoted that verse. To live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, it's been, become this big Christian mantra. But, but do I really embrace it? Is that really the cry of my heart? Is it really true? Or am I just saying it? The litmus test is for you. What are you holding on to now above the presence of God? And that's why Jesus says in one place, unless you hate your mother and father and their parents, like he just paints this huge picture. And he's not saying don't love these people, but he's saying if you love them more than me, if you care about this more than me, listen, then you're diminishing the value of the gospel. And that's the picture. He takes on flesh and blood, incarnates himself, takes on human nature, defeats death by his resurrection, and then we would have the audacity to say, no God, I want to live on my terms, I want to die on my terms because of all of this that's left back here. 
And so I'll tell you when I die. I'll tell you when I live. And what we're saying is, then your sacrifice means nothing. I should have been the one to sacrifice. But when a sacrifice is something, then you embrace what Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain, because I'll be in the presence of the Almighty forever. I'm struggling with this. I'm not saying I have this figured out. But what I am saying is those are our options. Are we together? I don't expect any of you just to speak of the words, oh yeah, that's me, to live as Christ, to die die as gain, of course, that's me. But can we pray that God would change your heart in that? Can I pray, God, I love my kids, you know I do, I love my wife, I don't want to leave them behind, but being in your presence is better than anything on this earth including these precious relationships that I have. Until we embrace that mentality, we will live in slavery. Can you picture that? Until you embrace this, the depth, the power of the gospel, you, I, will live in slavery. Who's he he talking to here? Verse 16 gives us a great picture. Next slide. For surely it is not the angels that he helps. Here comes the angels again, right? Fluttering their wings in the picture. Now, you remember if you've been journeying with us through Hebrews, a big piece of his contention so far, and come next week because he'll, he'll shift gears, has been that Jesus is far superior in nature to angels. And we've described many times that the Hebrew Christians, that the writer is writing here to, they're reaching out for something cosmic, including angels, to make mediation. And so he says here, look, it's not angels that he's come to help. The Greek word for help here is rescue. Listen, the better, grab a hold of. It's not the angels that he comes down and grabs a hold of that he rescues, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So you're thinking in your mind, am I the offspring of Abraham? Like, carry the one? What's the Bible say about that? Abraham is my granddad. I don't know, right? Like, Romans chapter 4 verse 1 says this, that Abraham is our, Paul writes this as a Gentile, Abraham is our forefather in the flesh, Romans 4 1 says. In both Matthew and Luke we see genealogies of how Abraham and Jesus are connected. The picture here isn't that he helps just the offspring of Abraham from the Jewish perspective, but those who share commonly in fellowship, as verse 14 says, in the flesh with Abraham. That's who he helps. That's who he rescues. That's how he redeems. And listen to this. This puzzle is about to get a massive piece in verse 17. Next slide. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This has literally boggled my mind and my heart all week long. He had to be made like his brothers. You remember last week what we said. He doesn't call the disciples anything in the scripture except disciples, pupils, and then all of a sudden after the resurrection, something changes, and for the first time, John 20, he calls the disciples what? Brothers. Something changed. There's unity now. He calls them brothers. He becomes like them in every respect. Now, I want to make this clear. He becomes like man in every respect, though man 
isn't like him in every respect. Are we, are we, are we together? He becomes like man in every respect, but man is not like him in every respect. Especially in this one critical piece that has truly messed with me this week. His sinlessness. Jesus sins not. Now, it's easy for us to talk about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. Satan comes down after 40 days of fasting and praying. Jesus, not Satan, right? Uh, Jesus is fasting 40 days. Satan comes, tempts Jesus with these three huge things. Jesus combats him with the word. It's easy for us to picture that was the temptation of Christ. The rest of his time on earth, he was not being tempted. It's easy for us to get that picture because there's such an escalation of Matthew 4. Let me ask you this. Uh, Take your thoughts today, your life, okay? How easily, over and over and over and over in your day, would it have been to sin? Your thoughts, your mouth, your lusts. Think, listen, think of how close you were all day long to sin. So close. Let's even take me for an example right now. I could be completely preaching for my own glory, for my own namesake. Every word that comes out of my mouth could be heretical, therefore sin. I could be doing all of this out of completely sinful motives, even right here this second. We're so close to sin. Jesus doesn't just get tempted in Matthew 4. Listen, he lives. Picture your day today. He lives an entire life on on this earth where no motive is sinful, no word is sinful, no aspect of his heart is sinful, no action is sinful. Can Listen, can the weight of this just sit on you for a second? Can you picture that? I've, I've never, until this text, gotten the weight of the sinlessness of Jesus until now. How close I am at all times to disobeying God and yet perfectly taking on every aspect of man, Jesus fails not, not even once. That picture of his sinfulness must build the doctrine of who we see Jesus is and in the rest of verse 17, what we see him doing. So that he might become a merciful and faithful what? High priest in the service of God. He becomes like his brothers, lives sinlessly, dies and is resurrected that he may become a merciful and faithful, what's the word? Come on. High priest. Now, we're going to spend entire chapters in Hebrews talking about the high priest. It'll be awesome. I can't wait. Until then, can I give a little preemptive uh, measure uh, language here? Can Can I do that for you? All right. Now, a high priest is the individual in the Jewish faith that has access into the Holy of Holies in the temple. On the Day of Atonement, it's the high priest who goes in and makes atonement for the sin of the people. It's the high priest that literally is the representative of all of the Jewish people to God. Interesting then, that it's the Jewish high priest in the Gospels that was part of the murder of Jesus. It's the high priest who stamps his approval on crucifying Christ. And at one point in the scriptures, one of the most profound pieces, you have Caiaphas the high priest and Jesus, the real high priest, looking face to face, eye to eye. Man to God man. 
Jesus becomes the faithful and merciful high priest. We have something bad going on here? We have, we have fire? We have fire? Let's not, let's not blow that. There we go. It's all, all part of the act tonight. All part of the act. We didn't know how this would go, so we have this back here, just in case. It was an experiment. We won't do it again. Don't worry about it. All right. Brandon will watch that. Let's, let's re-engage, okay? Let's refocus, all right? Jesus becomes. Can we roll? Can we roll? Let's refocus here. I know we just had a fire in church. It's awesome, but... Again, it's all part of the thing. It was God just boom, right? <laughs> Jesus becomes the faithful and merciful high priest, which clearly Caiaphas couldn't become, you see? Caiaphas fails. Jesus becomes the high priest, is representative of the people to God, and he does it in a merciful way, though the people don't deserve it. Jesus was inno- innocent, yet the Jewish high priest killed Jesus. And not only is the high priest in Christ merciful, but he's faithful. He does it in a consistent, trustworthy manner. Jesus is both merciful and faithful, the high priest, making representation of you to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? God hates sin. Are you aware of this? He hates it. That's what he was trying to show us over there on the candles, right? Like, candle is sin. I hate this, you know, burn. He hates sin, hates it. And God's wrath had to be poured out for sin, on sin, because of sin. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, the wrath of God is completely placed on the person of Christ. All of the anguish, all of the hatred of sin, all of the wrath, the fullness of the wrath of God, is put on Jesus. And if Jesus wasn't fully man and fully God, if he wasn't incarnated, if he didn't take on flesh and blood, then the the shame, the regret, the remorse of sin, the propitiation wouldn't have been made. But he was a man, and he was sinless, and he did get hungry, and so God's wrath was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. That's propitiation. He makes propitiation, the way, the sacrifice becomes full in the person of Christ. Now, all of this, listen, all of this sets up for us his high priestly service in verse 18. Please see this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The picture that we get here of Jesus as the high priest is that because he experienced what we did, because he was tempted and because of those temptations ridiculed, he was lied about, he was whipped, smacked, killed, murdered, And he was innocent. 
He clearly suffered, though being tempted. No, not now. In fact, Peter, even one of his disciples, tempts him. You don't have to die. You don't have to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's how, that's how clearly he saw his temptation. Because he suffered when tempted, then all of a sudden for us, all of a sudden for us, listen, he becomes something so much more than any of you have given him credit for. Get out your card. Get out your card. What happens when you pull up to the homeless guy and you've been homeless? What happens when you're in your car and you pull up to the homeless guy and it says, help me? And you've done that before. What happens in that moment? Is there a perspective shift for you? Does something change? What happens when the friend says, my spouse is asking for a divorce and you've gone through a divorce too? What happens when you've been a single mom? You see this scene unfold. Is there a different kind of emotion? Is there a different connection? Is there a different level of respect? What happens to the family whose kid goes in three months premature and you are right there in the NICU with yours? What happens? And what happens when you've been the one strung out on your face, completely abusing drugs, seeing the ramifications of it on your body? What happens when you see someone after you've come out struggling too? Does your perspective change? Do your emotions change? Do you relate a little bit more? You give Jesus credit for him being a savior because you need it. You give him credit some days for him being Lord because it's convenient. You give him credit some days for him being your trailblazer and that you can follow suit. But friends, he's not just savior. He's not just Savior. He's not just Lord. He's Helper. He's Redeemer. He's Sustainer. He's Healer. He's all of them all the time. And because He came down, took on flesh and blood, and related to you, then He's not this distant God that's hanging in heaven and looking down on all of us peons. He's a God who sympathizes. A God who says, I know I was there. And I know this, you cannot make it on your own. You can't. I already did. I did it for you. Trust in me. It's my strength that will get you through this. It's my wisdom. It's my scriptures. It's my words. I'm not just Savior. I'm not just Redeemer. I'm not just Lord. I'm all of them. I'm Healer. I'm everything. And the fullness of it 
is seen, as the Scripture clearly says, in His death, in His suffering. What I'm calling the church to tonight is a celebration. A gratitude of the suffering of Jesus. Because it was in that suffering that He made relatability to you. It was in the wounds and the bruised flesh and the blood poured out on a cross that our God becomes personal, becomes real. And this suffering, which you so little think about, so rarely give thanks for, is the very means by which God, through Jesus, by the empowerment of the Spirit, is literally everything that we need. And so then, as we understand that, I don't measure up God against my kids. There's no comparison. I don't measure up God against another female or male, though it seems so significant at the time. There's no comparison. I don't measure up God against anything of this world because he compares not. And then I'm able to sit back, not gripped by this yoke of slavery, fearing every day that I might die. Instead, I truly live because he came out of the grave. And because he lives, I can live too. Now. And when he takes me, he takes me, and it will be to my gain. And I'll fall on my face in his presence and say, no one, in this, no one is worthy like you. But you've taken it for granted. You've looked at his sufferings as if they just earn you forgiveness. That it just can somehow become your, your measure of your heaven card. But can you just understand tonight that when he breaks the bread in the presence of the disciples, he has not sinned. When he breaks the bread, he knows I am completely innocent and they're going to kill me on the cross. And Isaiah 53 says that it was God's will that he would be crushed. My own father is going to be okay with that and I'm going to be okay with it too because it's through my broken body that I'm going to be able to relate to these people, that I'm going to be able to save them, that I'm going to be able to be their God, that I'm going to be able to be their Lord. This has to be broken. Do you get this? He breaks the bread, and in that moment, he is completely innocent. And the scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died, knowing full well who we were and what we would be doing. And then he takes the cup. horrible, heretical teaching that Jesus doesn't feel the pain is the same teaching that would say the blood meant nothing, but friends, it means everything. The real blood spilt on the cross is your atonement. The real pain of Jesus taking the wrath of God means you don't have to. So can you just picture ancient Mesopotamian times, it's hot in the air, 
and he lifts the cup up before these men and he says, this blood represents the new covenant, knowing full well that in several hours it would be pouring out of his flesh. So he says, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Tonight, we come to the cross to give gratitude for the fact that Jesus came, lived sinlessly in flesh and blood so that tonight and for all of time, he can not just be your Savior or your Lord, but your God, everything. Repent of your lack of taking the suffering seriously. And as you come to the cross as believers, and you pull off a piece of that bread and you dip it in the cup, may it be in complete gratitude for what Christ has done for you, knowing that when you're tempted, we have a God who doesn't just sit on a throne not being able to relate. We have a God who sympathizes. And that's a good God, amen? Let's stand together. So Father, I pray we would rest and trust in your greatness. You would help us embrace the idea that our life here and now is nothing in comparison to your presence. God, help my friends as they repent now as I repent. God, grip us with your love Help show us that you're everything. Your character leaves no holes. You are everything. God, thank you that you're the sustainer, that you're the redeemer, that you're holy, that you're merciful and gracious and all the time loving. God, thank you that you're faithful. And so as we come tonight and remember the cross, will you stir in our hearts attitudes of gratitude? Church, when you're ready in repentance, come and give thanks for his suffering.